So if you know me, if you've been around for a while, you know I love Christmas. I'm very, very proud to say that in my front living room, if you were to walk in there today, you would see a Christmas tree in its entirety still lit, still up, and still rejoicing. And so, yes, we are rocking this. It's awesome. My poor wife wants to kill me, but it's great having a blast with that. And uh, so early December, I'm thinking about Christmas. I'm thinking about what we're going to be doing here for the set on the stage. So I start to uh, pull some stuff together. I get our worship pastor, Andrew, and our youth pastor, Joey, and my wife, and we're kind of here in the room, and we're talking through stuff, and we start to put some stuff up, and I'm checking back in with these guys every so often as we're working hard putting the stage together, and uh, eventually it kind of looked like this. You guys can check out this picture. That kind of looks like what you ended up seeing here in the room. That was sort of what the the stage looked like, Um, obviously minus all the garbage on on the stage itself, and so as I'm working on it, these guys, we all decide, yeah, we like we like it. We're good with this. So the next morning, after we finally got it all set up, our executive pastor, Pastor Ravone, walks into the back of the room, and it was the first time he was going to be seeing the Christmas set. And I'm sitting at the light board doing some stuff, and he's just standing there, staring at the stage in silence. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, he's just, like, in such awe right now. Like, he just loves this so much. He's so happy with how this came out. And I'm patting myself on the back. I'm very excited. And he just goes like this. It looks like a monster. And I was like, what? He goes, it looks like a monster. I'm like, what are you talking about? This does not look like a monster. So then Andrew and Joey walk in, and I'm like, guys, pastor thinks the stage set looks like a monster. And they start laughing. I'm like, what is he talking about? And Andrew goes, oh, wait, I think I see it. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's no monster. It's an awesome, cool stage design. What are you talking about? So Joey and Kelly and I are in here trying to figure it out. Joey disappears over into his office. About an hour and a half later, I'm up on a ladder messing around with something back here. And he goes, I see it. I get it. He goes, it's from Ghostbusters. It's one of the terror dogs. There it is right there. So I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, no, just look at this and look at that. So we have this split screen. And you can kind of see a little bit of what they're talking about there, right? You got the intelligent lights kind of making the eyes in the back. And you got the horn and the head up there. So I was so frustrated. I was so annoyed and so frustrated because I'd worked so hard. So we ended up just kind of taking those, those lights and ornaments that are hanging down and sort of separated it all out and took out the monsterness of it, I guess you could say. But I just remember being so annoyed, especially at Pastor Bravone, because here I had worked so hard and he just seemed so unimpressed with what I'd done. And I think sometimes that's what God must feel as well. That sometimes... He's there doing his thing, being an amazing God, doing such awesome, powerful, wonderful things, and we're walking through life unimpressed, sometimes with a little bit of an attitude, sometimes with like kind of this question in our minds, like, God, what have you really done for me? Or at the very least, God, what have you done for me lately, you know? God, what difference have you really made in my life? And I think we can kind of get a little bit of a cold heart toward God sometimes. We can get a little bit agitated toward God. And there's different reasons we feel this sometimes. Sometimes we feel this when we've asked God for something and we haven't gotten it. And so we prayed and asked God that, you know, when we asked her out on the date, she'd say yes. And we asked her out and she said no. I said, God, where were you in that? Uh, We prayed about the job situation. God, I feel like I killed it in the interview. I'm really excited about this. And it didn't work out. And we're like, God, what happened here? And so it kind of turns into like, God, what have you done for me? Why didn't you show up? Why didn't you make a difference in that scenario? Why haven't you changed the situation? And and what makes it worse is when we don't get what we ask for, but like some other guy seems like he gets everything he asked for. You know, isn't that the worst? You know, like you're praying, you're asking God for things, and and you're getting no response. And then there's some guy who's up on the stage every week giving another testimony. 
And you're just like annoyed, just sitting out there going, praise God, praise God. Then sorry, you're going, I hate you. I, I just, you better watch your back in the parking lot because I'm coming for you, bro. You're just so annoyed and frustrated because it seems like God's doing things in his life or her life and not yours. And so sometimes we get this sort of attitude and this agitation and this coldness towards God. Sometimes uh, this is when we're just kind of confident in ourselves. You know, maybe things are going kind of well for us in life and we actually start to lean back on our own abilities a little bit. Maybe we just start to get a little bit of victory in our life, and so we start to think, oh, man, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. I, I can kind of handle this. I, I'm doing okay. Like, do, I, do I really need God? I'm, I'm a pretty good person just in and of myself. And the time we maybe can struggle with this is when someone in our life is trying to sort of get us to doubt God. You know, I think we all have these people in our lives where we're excited about Jesus, we're excited about something that God's doing in our life, and then... There's this person we go and tell, and they're just sort of there to punch holes in the whole theory. You know, like I have a friend like this. Uh, I love him a lot. I want him to know Jesus. He's not, not close to God. And so I'll talk with him about God. And once in a while, I'll bring up a story. You know, he'll, he'll just kind of say, like, how do you know God's real? And I'll say, well, God did this in my life. And then he'll start to try to tear it apart and say, oh, no, it was a coincidence, or this is why that happened. And, and we have these people in our lives, and sometimes they get in our heads, and they get us asking the question, maybe without even realizing it, like, God, why aren't you doing more in my life? God, what have you done for me lately? I remember talking to a young lady years ago who had experienced God in such an awesome, powerful way. God literally, physically healed her body. And she went, she was telling her mom about the scenario and what had happened. And her mom said back to her, well, you know what? Just wait long enough and God will let you down. And sometimes we just have these people in our lives. And they kind of get in our head a little bit. Another time that we can struggle with sort of this, what have you done for me, God, attitude is when we're just used to it all. You know, we're just used to being a Christian. We're just used to Jesus. We're used to the cross. We're used to the gospel. We're used to the Bible verses, you know. And we just sort of lose some passion. We lose some awe. The things that used to bring tears to our eyes or get us excited or amazed just sort of bounces off us. We just know it. We've heard it. And it just gets old. And man, that's, that scares me. I don't ever want to be that guy. I'm sure I have been that guy. But I don't ever want to be that guy again that the gospel gets old to, or the story of Jesus, or opening up God's word. I mean, some of us in the room, you're like, man, I could teach, you know, I could teach a whole class on theology, but I don't feel close to God right now. I, I know all the Bible verses, all the chapters, all the places, everywhere to look, everything to say, all the right answers, but I just don't feel like God has done much for me lately. I think, lastly, to just bring this up, I think another time that we struggle with this is when we suffer. You know, we talked last two weeks about suffering, and I hope you found some hope for when you're walking through suffering and what we looked at over the last several weeks. But sometimes when we suffer, we ask this question. God, what, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you moving? Why are you so silent? I spoke with a couple after the 1130 service who said that. They're going through a really hard time. And I said, well, have you prayed about it? And what do you feel like God's saying? And they said, we just kind of feel like right now there's no answer. And that's so difficult. And that can be so hard. And so we all sometimes ask that question, God, what have you done for me? What have you really done for me? What real difference have you made in my life? Or what have you at least done for me lately? And this is so important for us to talk about because here is the truth and here's the encouragement I want you to walk out of here with tonight. God has done so much for you. God has done so, so incredibly much for you and for me. And when you and I walk around feeling kind of sorry for ourselves, disappointed in God, angry at God, shaking our fist at God, or just like a little bit of an attitude, or, or just kind of arrogant, then we're missing out on the life and the joy and the satisfaction that Jesus died for you and I to have. 
And so tonight, I just want to remind you what God has done for you. And maybe for the first time, some of you will hear tonight what God has done for you, that he's done so incredibly much. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you might not follow Jesus because you would feel like the answer to this question, what has God done for me, is I don't know. I don't know. My friend told me to come, or I've seen maybe God make a difference in their life, but I haven't really seen it yet, or, or I know some Christians and I thought they were like the real thing, and then they, they just really hurt me, they showed me no love of Jesus, and, and I have a hard time believing in God now because of how I was treated, and I don't know. I don't know what difference God makes. And so tonight, I want you to see that here as well. And so we're going to look at Romans chapter 8. We have been seeing that this is the best chapter ever, at least in my humble opinion, the best chapter ever. We're in part 7 here, just going right through this uh, verse by verse. And Paul wrote this letter to his friends in Rome. Paul loved Jesus so much. Man, talk about a guy who understood all that God had done for him. Talk about someone who let Jesus' life-changing message change his world and keep him passionate and fired up. And so here, I want us to look at Romans chapter 8 tonight. And here's what I hope. Right now, I'm doing some home repairs at my house. And part of that has been some painting. And so, I don't know if you've ever painted before and then sort of taken that paint and put it in the closet, put it in the garage, wherever it might be. And then like a year later, for some reason, you have to do some patchwork. You have to put some paint uh, that... that Maybe a spot wore away, or maybe one of your crazy kids put an arm or something, or a head through a wall. Uh, been there, done that. I don't know what it might be, but you go and you get the paint, and you know when you first pop that paint open, and like you're looking at the wall, and like, let's just say that this is the this is the color of the wall, and you open the paint, and you're like, that looks nothing like that. It's all like muddy and nasty, and it looks disgusting. You're like, I would never put this on the wall. But then what do you do? You take out that paint stirrer, and you stir that thing up, and before you know it you get that beautiful color back. Like all the junk on top was kind of just mixed back in with all the good stuff down on the bottom and it just all comes out like it should. And tonight, what I hope to do is sort of stir up your paint can a little bit. I hope to sort of stir up that passion in your heart. Stir some of that junk maybe that's on the top of your heart and it's kind of messing with you and it's kind of got your heart calloused and allow some of that emotion and passion and awe and excitement about Jesus to be stirred back up and mixed back up toward the top. And so we're going to look here at Romans 8, 29 and answer the question, what has God really done for us? It says this, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. So we start right out with a really controversial verse. This is an argument starter if you're a church person, okay? That word predestination is, or predestined is the word that starts the fights. And here's what I want to say tonight, is that I don't want us to fight about this verse, because I'm right. No, I'm just kidding. I, I don't want us to, I have the mic. You have to listen. You can't reply. No, I, I don't want us to fight about this verse. What I want us to do is be amazed by this verse. It's to be wowed by this verse. Because really, here's how it comes down. The reason there's a fight is some people say we have absolute free will and we choose God. Other people say, no, we don't have free will. God chooses us. And, and what I want to say tonight is no matter how that comes down, no matter what you make of this verse, God is still amazing and has shown us tremendous grace. I mean, on our pastoral staff, there are disagreements about what this verse means. Um, In my take, it means that God chose us and opened our eyes and we never would have been able to choose him. And yet at the same time, we make a real choice and we have a free will. Some of our other staff disagree with that. And that's okay. Like I said, of course, I'm right. And so, uh, just kidding. But, um, But any way you slice it, here's what happened. Either God opened your eyes that you couldn't open yourself or he allowed your open eyes to see how beautiful he is. Either way. You slice it. God's been incredibly gracious to you and I. So right off the bat, we start to see that God has revealed himself 
to us in an amazing way. And then it tells us why he predestined us. It says this, to be conformed to the image of his son. And so God loves you so much, he wants to do the most loving thing he can, and that is make you and I like Jesus. And so he begins to work on our heart, and he begins to work on our lives a little bit, and he begins to add some love into our lives. He begins to add some peace into our hearts, and we look a little bit more like his son, Jesus. Some of you guys know Joe Patty. He's one of our worship leaders, so he'll be leading actually next Sunday. And about two months ago, I guess Joe just had some random extra time on his hand because I received this text of this picture from Joe here. Some of you guys will remember this. Uh, you guys remember Doug from Nickelodeon? Remember Patty Mayonnaise and Skeeter? Well, he started out with that image and then conformed it to my image, right? He just gave a nice little beer, gave, gave him a nice little microphone. Hey, it's Doug from church. And you know what? That's exactly what Jesus does with us. That's what God does with us. It's so cool. He takes us in our rough edge form and he conforms us to the image of his son. He's working with you just like you are right now, just like I am right now, flaws and all, and more and more, he adds a little love, he adds a little hope, he adds a little peace, and more and more, we begin to look like Jesus. That's how good God is to us. And so, so far, let's just review it real quick. He predestined us and he's conforming us or making us more like his amazing, loving son, Jesus. Then this verse is a little confusing. I'll try to make it clear. He says this, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What does that mean? It means Jesus would be the firstborn or the first raised back from the dead among many brothers and sisters. Now, you and me are the brothers and sisters, which that means God wants to make you part of his family. God wants you to be his son or his daughter. God wants us to be his children. God, what have you done for me? Well, I predestined you and I'm, I'm making you more like my son because that's the most loving thing I can do. And I want to be your father. I want you to be my child. Next it says this in verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. Paul wrote this letter in the Greek language and that word called means to summon or to invite. So I just want to encourage you this, uh, tonight, this afternoon. Let's do that one. I want to encourage you because some of you think that Here you are pursuing God, running after God, trying so hard. Where is he, God? Why aren't you responding? And I just want you to know the truth tonight. God is actually the initiator in your relationship. He's the one who summoned you. He's the one who invited you. He's the one who called out to you. And some of us respond quickly, and some of us take a while. If I call for my three kids, I'll get two different responses. Cade and Brain will answer immediately, every single time. And then there's Landon. Landon will answer, like, next week. Like, I'll have to call his name about 7,000 times before he finally realizes. And he's a great kid. He's not, like, trying to be rebellious or anything. He's just zoned out. He's just so entrenched in what he's doing or thinking about. He could be sitting on my lap watching a movie. I'd be like, Landon, 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 have some popcorn. Landon, 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 Landon. He'd be like, Dad, why are you yelling at me? Because I called you 8,000 times, Landon. Respond to me already, okay? <laughs> now, some of you guys are Caden Bryn. You heard God's call, and you answered. And some of you are Landon. And he's patient, and he loves you, and he's calling after you. And he calls, and he calls, and he calls out of love, and he initiates, and he invites, and he summons, and he pursues out of love. And I encourage you today, if, if he's calling you, you haven't responded yet, to respond to his love, to respond to what he's done for you. Then it says this in the next part. Those he called, he also justified. Now, justified is a legal term. It means that if you were to stand in a court of law 
and the judge justified you, it means that you would be basically seen as someone who didn't do that wrong thing you were accused of. That that accusation would be removed, that you'd be seen as right, just as if you'd never done that thing. And you guys have heard me say this before. When I, I used to think that when I stood before God in, in, in you know, heaven's court, so to speak, that I would have tattooed all over me all my sin, my, my anger, my lust, my fear, my doubt, my pride, my jealousy, all that junk just all over me, and God would just see that all over me. But the truth is, is that God's justified me. He's removed all of that from me. I used to think also that there'd be like these huge screens in heaven. They'd play, black, play back all my mistakes and all the sin I'd done. My grandma's would be passing out in the bag. You know? I thought Doug was a good little boy. No, he's a grandma, I wasn't. And, and there, again, mistaken. God is not going to be reminding me of all my sin when I stand before him in heaven because I've been justified. You've been justified. That's what God's done for you. Then it says this, those he justified, he also glorified. Now this is an interesting Uh, phrase here that Paul uses. It's interesting because of what it means and because of how Paul uses it, okay? What it means is this. It means to cause to have splendid greatness, okay? So God loves you so much that he's going to cause you to have splendid greatness. Well, how does that work? Well, it works when you and I get to heaven and we no longer have bodies that hurt. We no longer have bodies that are in pain, that can get sick. We no longer have a a spirit that can sin. We no longer have a sin nature that does the wrong thing and will stand before God glorified. But it's kind of interesting because of the way Paul said it. Actually, Brian, if you could just skip back one slide. Look at what it says. It says, those he justified, he also glorified. The, The weird thing about this is that you and I won't be glorified until we're actually in heaven. But Paul says it like it was done in the past. He says, those he justified, he also glorified. Well, what's he doing here? Well, he used this really cool writing technique that they would use back in the day. It was called the Hebrew prophetic past tense. The Hebrew prophetic past tense. And what it means is they would use this when there was something that hadn't happened yet, but they were so sure it was going to happen that they wrote about it like it already happened. And Paul's saying, let me just tell you. I know you're, you're still living on this fallen world. I know your body still hurts. I know you're, you're still tempted. I know sometimes you still give in to sin. I know that all this brokenness is around you, but it is as good as done that you will stand before your Savior one day, whole, glorified, perfect, pure, no sin, no sickness, no death, no mourning, no tears. So what's your father done for you? I hope you're starting to to get some passion awoken in your heart. I hope you're starting to get a little bit of awe back because he, in incredible ways, has predestined us. He wants to make us like Jesus. He's called us. He's justified us. And he will glorify us. Then it says in verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? See, see, I love that phrase because Paul is trying to help us realize that he's looking for a response. See, I think this is big because I think as followers of Jesus sometimes, if we're kind of just used to it all and we're kind of just cold and callous and and a little bit angry toward God or bitter toward God, there's no real response. It's kind of like we come in and we hear all these same things and we leave and we're just the same. And Paul's saying, hey, you can't just stay neutral. How do we respond to this? What are we going to do, people? We're saved. We're justified. We will be glorified. God loves us. We're his kids. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Then he says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now Paul's not saying that sometimes people won't be against us. He's just saying God is so big that it's like no one's against you and God's on your side. Like who can stand against 
God. Then verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And so God the Father puts his son on the cross in our place. And here's the thing. You ready everybody to listen to this for a second? Haven't you, can't you relate to this? The Father puts his son on the cross in our place, and you and I still wonder if God can be trusted sometimes, don't we? We still wonder if he's good. We still wonder if he's going to work on our behalf. We still wonder if he's going to hold back, if he's going to be stingy, if he's not going to give us the things that we need. Now, let me just say a couple things on this. This is not a blank check. This is not like, God, great, then where's my Ferrari, you know? God, awesome, where's my like perfect Manhattan apartment in the top of the city, you know, perfect view and overlook. I mean, no, that's not what this means. Remember why you were predestined, so that you could be conformed to the image of Jesus. You see, anything that you ask for, anything that God gives you that will make you more like Jesus is what this verse is talking about. He's not going to hold anything back that's going to make you more like Jesus because that's the most loving thing that God can do. And so if you start crying out to God, God, make me more loving. God, make me a better dad. God, make me a better husband. God, make me a better wife. God, make me a better employee. God, fill me with your hope. God, I'm so gripped with anxiety. God, free me from that. You're going to see the Father's not going to hold back any of that. He's going to give you peace. He's going to make you a great husband, a great wife. He's going to put the plans for your future more and more, more clarity for you. God, help me know what your will is for my life. That's a prayer that God's going to answer. He's not going to hold any of that back because he didn't even spare his son. I mean, just think about that for a second. If I were to give up one of my sons in your place, if, if somehow the death of one of my sons could save your life, would you ever doubt my love for you again? Would you ever sit back and go, man, I wonder if Doug actually cares for me? I wonder, uh, let me ask you this, would you ever be afraid to ask me for anything? And yet, sometimes I think, and if I'm just being real, aren't we all sometimes afraid to approach God? But that's what God's done for you. He's made it so that he's approachable and desires to give you and me anything that's going to make us more like his son. Not going to hold anything back. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. And this takes us back to week one. Remember, we saw that you and I don't get judged and condemned for our sin. Someone was judged. It just wasn't you or me. It was God. It was Jesus in our place, right? And so this doesn't mean that people won't try to condemn us. This won't mean that sometimes we struggle with condemning ourselves. This doesn't mean the enemy won't try to whisper condemnation in our ears. It just means, listen, please, that God's voice has to be louder. God wants to be that loudest voice in our life when it comes to the condemnation in our life. When I was a kid, I used to really love to play basketball. I would play basketball for hours and hours a day. The problem was I was really bad at it. And my dad got a basketball hoop, put it in my backyard. My dad's six foot eight. He can still dunk. He's 60 years old. He's the man, right? And the hoop's in the backyard. I'd be out there for hours, and I'd be standing at what was, I had drawn out the foul line, you know, measured it out. And I'd be standing there, and I would go, okay, if I make this next one, I'm going to be on the Knicks when I'm older. And an air ball, right? I'd be out there for like an hour just trying to get the one so I could finally be on the Knicks and go inside. You know, it was ridiculous. And so I started playing basketball with some friends at church, and they were really good kids. I mean, way better than me. And, and one day, these older kids came into the gym, and they just took the gym over. Like, all right, get off the court. We're playing now. And they just kicked us off the court. And so we're all mad, and my friends are all yelling back, eh, that's not fair, whatever. We're walking off the court. And, and one of the guys who was older 
then calls me and goes, hey, hey Doug, but you can play with us. And I was like, that's right, I can play. You know? And I honestly was like shocked as anybody else. And my friends start yelling at them. They start yelling at me. They start, this isn't fair. He's, he, it's, we're, we're better than he is. This isn't fair. Why can't we play if he can play? And then one of my friends came running out and said, Doug, I just want to let you know that Rob said that after the game, he's going to beat you up because they let you play and not him. And I was like, yeah, like Rob can beat me up. You know, of course he can. No one can. But I'm on the court, right? Why are you laughing? That's not fun. That's not, I'm very jacked. And so um, I'm on the court, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, like, I'm in this really awkward place because here are these guys who chose me to play even though I don't have the goods to play, and here are my friends yelling at me and accusing me of not being out there, that I shouldn't be out there, and I have a choice to make. Whose voice is going to be louder? Am I going to let these guys who chose me even though I don't deserve it be louder than the voice of the people accusing me and telling me I'm not good enough? And that's exactly what we have to do. This verse is telling us that God's so good to us. What he's done is is so great for us that he doesn't want us to entertain any condemnation or judgment in our heart. He wants us to walk free of that. And his voice has to be louder. Who condemns? No one. God's on your court. God's yelling at the people on the sideline and yelling at you. Don't shut up. You know what you're talking about. I've justified him. I've justified her. There, there, there are no tattoos of their sin all over them. There are no big screens everyone's going to see. No, they're free. That's what God's done for you and for me. And then the last little part we'll look at tonight is the end of verse 34. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So Jesus died for us. And now he's interceding for us. Remember last week we talked about this word interceding. We said the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. He's praying for us. And this is so encouraging to me because a lot of the stuff that we've talked about tonight is like 2,000 years ago. Like, right, Jesus died 2,000 years ago for you. And he justified you. You know, he he began that work 2,000 years ago. And and all this stuff, Paul's writing this 2,000 years ago. But can I just encourage you that February 7th, 2016, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father for you. Like today, right now. And he's praying for you. God, I pray for her. Give her strength at school this week. God, I pray for him. I know he feels stuck at work. God, give him grace. Give him favor with that boss. Jesus is praying to the Father for you right now. I know their marriage is falling apart, God. I just, Father, I just pray that you will strengthen them, help them to to live the way that you would have them to live. Uh, Holy Spirit, fill them in a fresh way. Jesus is at bat for you. So you got God on your court and you got Jesus at bat for you here now. That's what Jesus has done for you. That's what God has done for you. And I love that this verse reminds us that, you know, Jesus interceding for us or praying for us isn't like having your boss or your friend or your neighbor praying for you or your grandma. Grandmas are great prayers. But Jesus, who died for you and rose back from the dead, is the one interceding for you at the, at the right hand of the Father right now. Are you starting to see that God's done a lot for you? Are you starting to see that to waste your emotion and your passion and your awe because you're disappointed, because maybe something didn't go your way. I'm not trying to say life isn't hard. Life's really hard sometimes, really, really hard. But if you and I walk around with an attitude that's stealing our joy and stealing our life or we're walking around with an arrogance or, or a disappointment in God, then, man, we're, we're missing the joy, the hope, the life that God 
has purchased for us. And so often we're focused on that one, those two, even those a hundred things that we're disappointed with God in, and we forget the one billion things that God has done for us that we should be so excited about. We're upset because I'm not trying to belittle this, you know, anything you're going through, but we're upset because we didn't get a job, but our sins have been forgiven. We're upset because maybe, you know, she didn't say yes when we asked her out, but I'm justified before God. And so, yeah, okay, life's still hard. I'm not trying to pretend it's not, but let's weigh it out here. Let's put this stuff on a scale and see what's more important and what's more powerful and and what should we be focusing our hearts and minds on. I, I think it's the fact that you and I have been treated in a way we don't deserve, that God loves us so much. And so I hope that all starting to return. I hope as I'm kind of stirring the paint can tonight, some of that junk is, is melt, getting melted back down into the truth and into the life and the awe and the power of what you've experienced in Jesus in the past. I hope you're seeing just the hope and the life that God desires you to walk in. And, and just my clear, simple thought for you tonight, uh, simple yet, man, this evades us, simple yet, man, if we could all just actually live this 24-7, wouldn't life look different? It's just a simple thought. God's done everything for you. That's what all these verses are saying. God's done everything for you. Everything that matters. Everything that that counts. Everything that's big and lasting and eternal. God has done all of it for you. Life's still hard, but God's done everything for you. We still get beat up. Sometimes emotions are hard. Sometimes relationships are difficult. But man, God has done everything for you and for me. Have you forgotten that lately? Have you gotten used to it? Is your head knowledge great, but your heart far from Jesus? Or maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Is this good news for you tonight? That there's a God who loves you like this. A God who wants to predestine you. A God who wants to make you more and more like Jesus. A God who wants to be your father. A God who called you, is initiating, is summoning, is inviting you. A God who justifies, wants to glorify you, a God who doesn't stand against you, but stands against those who stand against you, a God who doesn't condemn you or judge you, but a God who says there is no condemnation, and a God who is literally answering the prayers of Jesus on your behalf. That's, that's this amazing God that we're celebrating here tonight. That's what Paul was so excited about. That's why he was so passionate. That's why he changed the whole world for Jesus. Because he understood this and he never let it get old and he never let his offenses with God, which he could have had a million of them with all he went through, he never let them harden his heart. And so tonight, if you've hardened your heart, if you're cold toward God, if you're disappointed, if you're a little bit arrogant, if you're a little bit angry, then tonight's the night just to get that awe back and that passion back and that excitement back. I want you just to imagine for a minute, a small underground chamber, the size of a prison, maybe five by seven. And you're, I just want you to imagine it's completely black, total darkness. I want you to imagine there's no sound, there's no people around, uh, there's no way of telling time. A group of scientists came up with this experiment and they wanted to put people in this and they asked this one man named Adam Bloom to do it, and, and he was in this for 48 hours. They wanted to see how people would react to this. And so he went in, and he said for the first half hour, he was kind of joking and making light of the situation, and eventually, just being in there for a while, he got bored, started kind of singing, just trying to entertain himself, and eventually he dozed off. Woke up, dozed off, woke up. He had no watch, no, no way of knowing if it was day or night, no way of knowing how much time had passed. Uh, it started to mess with his head. He started to hallucinate. He started to hysterically cry. He just became a mess. He said it was a terrible, terrible experience. 
but there was something that came out of it that he didn't expect. He said when he walked out, something happened he didn't see coming. You see, he said a few days earlier when he had driven into the facility where they were going to do the test, as he got out of the car, he was kind of critical of, of the environment. He was looking around at the, the building. He kind of run down. He was looking at the, the grass was all overgrown and kind of all these wild flowers are growing. And he's just like, man, no one takes care of this place. And he was kind of critical and had a bit of an attitude. He said when he walked out that night after what he'd been through, being in that prison cell, being in the darkness, being in anguish for all that time, when he walked out of it, he said, I couldn't believe how green the grass was. I couldn't believe how beautiful the flowers. I couldn't believe how blue the sky was. And you know what? Maybe tonight you walked in here and you've been in a little bit of a, a time of darkness yourself. You've been maybe a little disoriented yourself. You've been maybe locked in a little bit of a prison yourself. And tonight I hope that as you walk out, you just see how green the grass is, so to speak. How blue the sky is, so to speak. You see how amazing a salvation you and I have. That sometimes we forget. How amazing God is that sometimes we're kind of critical of. That God has done everything for us. It's time to get the gratitude back. It's time to get the awe back. It's time to get the passion back. It's time to humble ourselves before God. It's time to repent maybe of some of the ways that we've been thinking about him and some of the ways we've been treating him and, and some of the ways maybe we've been running from him. And it's time to Allow this relationship with Jesus just to be everything to us again. And so if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, I just really hope that that all returns. I hope that you will worship like a person who's been saved in a minute. I hope that you will go out of this building and as you hang out and have a great time at some Super Bowl parties, I hope you'll worship Jesus with your lifestyle like a person who's been saved tonight at those parties. As you go back into your work week, as you see and interact with your spouse, your kids, your girlfriend, boyfriend, your parents, your professors, your bosses this week, I hope you and I will act and respond like people who literally have been saved from our own death by an amazing, loving God. I hope we'll just be in awe of our Savior. I just wonder what would happen. What would happen if a church full of a few hundred people kept that passion alive, walked around in that awe, didn't lose it. I know I lose it sometimes. I know I walk around with a bit of an attitude sometimes and an ungratefulness in my heart and, an, and some cockiness and some, some pride toward God. I know I do it. What would happen if we just let our hearts remain moldable in his hands and we were just constantly amazed at what Jesus had done for us? I think everything could change. I would guess it's the answer to a lot of our sin struggles here in this room. That Accountability partners are great and and, uh, you know, trying to think about the consequences. And, yeah, that's great and all good. You know, spare yourself the consequences. But, man, I'll tell you, the number one thing that would help us defeat the sin and struggles in our lives would just be the awe of God returning, the amazement of the Savior that gave his life for us. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you as we close in prayer in just a minute to come back to Jesus asking him for that awe again, asking him for that passion again, Maybe repenting of some attitude, some anger, some disappointment, some running maybe. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would love for you to put your trust in him tonight. I'm going to give you that opportunity in just a minute. But just be encouraged tonight. God has done everything for you. Let's pray. So Lord, we're just so grateful to you that we can come now to you and we have you 
in our court, God. We have you going to bat for us. We have you desiring for us to walk free of all the guilt, the shame, of all the sin. The consequence has been paid. The, the judgment has been taken care of. Jesus carried all of that. And I just pray, God, that tonight we will move forward knowing that, God, if you're for us, no one can be against us. That if you're for us, God, every voice of accusation and condemnation is silenced. That, God, you're our dad. That you're our father. That you're so good, you removed our sin and you desire to make us more and more like you. Thank you, Jesus, that you're interceding for us right now. Praise you for that. If you're a follower of Jesus, will you just have an honest conversation with God? Maybe it's as simple as this. God, I've lost the passion. God, I remember a time when I just, I loved you more or I was more excited about you. I was more excited about the things of God that I am right now. Would you forgive me and would you reignite that passion in my heart? Maybe it's, God, I'm just angry. I'm angry you didn't say yes to my prayer. I'm angry you didn't heal. I'm angry you didn't provide. I'm angry you didn't get me that job. I'm just angry. And I I just confess that to you now and, and I weigh it on those scales. And I see, God, that maybe I didn't get the job, but God, my sin's forgiven. Maybe I didn't get the job, but, but Jesus is on my side. And he doesn't condemn me, though I deserve to be condemned. So maybe just some humility tonight. So I don't know what it might be for you as a Christian, but I encourage you to go and spend that time with Jesus. And If you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to put your trust in him, then you can just pray something like this between you and God. Jesus, thank you so much for dying in my place. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you removed all of my sin. And I could never have done that myself. Please show me how real you are. God, would you just more and more show me how amazing it is that you have done everything for me. In your name.